Well, every three years, August turns into a nightmare for Anglican preachers. In August of year B, and that's what church people call the year we happen to be in, our lectionary follows uh, the Gospel of Mark with occasionally pieces of John filtered in. So in our church service, we read through the Gospel of Mark and basically preach our way through the Gospel of Mark and the other passages as well. But um, in August of year B, and this is August, uh, we read one chapter in John, John 6. It's divided into four parts, and uh, we read it and speak on it almost every Sunday of those four Sundays in August. And in John 6, Jesus goes on and on and on and on for about 84,000 words or so about how he is the bread of life. Now, it's good stuff. All Jesus' stuff is good stuff, okay. But preaching on the same theme four weeks in a row, um, well, it's a bit challenging. I'm not saying that even in a, a year, even in 10 years of four times a, a year going through John 6, we would exhaust all the meaning, but you might exhaust the preacher with coming up with the meaning. Okay. So um, I'll do my brother clergyman a favor and focus on Exodus this week to leave them some space to find something new to say about Jesus being the bread of life next week. Unless it's still me. So, Well, let's talk about manna in the wilderness. The book of Exodus is about, well, really what is it about? Exodus means to exit, to go out. The title indicates that it's the story of the Hebrew people leaving Egypt. But now by chapter 16, the people have already gotten out of bondage. They're out of slavery. They're out of Egypt. And yet we still have two-thirds of the book to go. So what is it really about? The book of Exodus is really about God's faithfulness to people who are themselves unfaithful. The particular story in Exodus 16 this morning comes in the middle of a cluster of three stories. By now I hope you have learned this key to Bible study. Same thing as real estate, what is it? Those of you at home, we have a low attendance Sunday so you didn't hear them say. Location, location, location. Everybody is on vacation this week. Um, Location, location, location. Location in time, the historical period, the historical context. Location in place, the culture and the law and the economy and food favorites and all that kind of stuff. And then location in scripture, what comes before and what comes after. Well, this particular story comes in the middle of a cluster of three stories, three tests. There are three tests of the people to see if they will rely on God, to see if they will have faith that God will provide for them. The first test is water. The people run out of water, so they grumble to Moses. You've brought us out here to die. But then they find an oasis. But the water is bitter. God tells Moses to throw a log of wood into it, and the water becomes sweet. Potable, drinkable. The second test is this one. The people run out of food. So they grumble to Moses. You brought us out here to die of hunger. The people run out of food. And they grumble again. An article came out. You may have seen it in in a news source of some sort this week. That uh, a paper was published arguing that the whole story of Exodus couldn't happen because there's no way these people could have found enough food out in the desert. 
We know. It's in the story. That's the point. They ran out of food. We know there wasn't enough food for them. They ran out. Maybe about, it was about two weeks ago, another of these articles came out that, there's, that now have archaeological evidence that the Hebrew people were worshiping false gods long after if Moses had ever existed, he would have told them to only worship one god. And people were on Twitter, atheists on Twitter saying, see, the Bible's not true. We have archaeological evidence that people were worshiping other gods. Like we also have documentary evidence. It's called the Old Testament. That's what the Old Testament is about. People keep worshiping other gods. So thank you for providing the archaeological evidence that the Old Testament knows what it's talking about. Well, of course, they run out of food. Then they grumble, and God provides food. The third test, they run out of water again, which is interesting. The people fail the first test on water. They fail the second test on water. They grumble again. You brought us out here to die. And the people fail the same test. God provides water again. Well, our assigned text this morning asks us to think about the second test, the middle test. The people run out of food, and God sends manna, bread from heaven, and he sends quail. Manna is a Hebrew word that literally means, what is it? As Emily read the story, that's what the people said when they saw this. What is this? When I was a kid, there was a chocolate bar called Whatchamacallit. It's kind of the same idea. Whatchamacallit, what is this stuff? It shows up after God promises it. And there are attempts to explain this away too. The most common is that it's some kind of fungus that occurred naturally. But it only showed up after God promised it. And it rots every day except Saturday when it knows not to rot. But come on. And then in the evening, God sends quail. That was one of my favorite parts of the Bible when I was a kid because my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, was a professional bird dog trainer, and he specialized in quail dogs. So when we ever, always, all the times we got to that story, I always, I always knew more than the other kids did about quail. Well, the test is, will the people be faithful? Will they believe God's promises? And this is the case from the beginning of Exodus to the end. The central story, of course, is the Passover. It becomes the central story of Judaism. And because of our communion service, it becomes a central story from the Old Testament about Christianity. The last of the plagues, God sends the angel of death to smite the firstborn son of all the families who don't do what he tells them to do, which is to mark the door, the lentil above the door, the doorposts, I should say, be specific, the doorposts, the lentil, with a lamb's blood to roast the lamb, to bake unleavened bread, to... Um, Stand ready to go with your staff in your hand and your sandals on your feet, ready to go. And you can imagine something like this. Two friends. I'll call them Ike and Shlomo. Those are two good Jewish names. Shlomo. I don't think I've ever met anybody named Shlomo, but it's a, it's a cool name. It, it's Yiddish. It means peaceful man. You may, if you listen to Shlomo, hear Shalom in there, the Hebrew word for peace. Salam is the cognate in, in Arabic. Um, and you'll see that's why I give him that, that name. It's the afternoon before Passover. The angel of death is coming that night. And Ike and Shlomo are hanging out, and Ike says, are you kind of nervous about tonight? And Shlomo says, not really. I, I mean, you got the news, right? You're supposed to put the blood on the door. And... 
And I said, yeah, I got the news. I already, I already got take, taken care of that. My wife's roasting the lamb right now and baking the bread. Yeah, yeah, we, we did all of that. And Shlomo says, so then why would you be nervous? God told Moses what to do to protect us. And if you've done it, then why would you be, why would you be nervous? And I says, well, it's the angel of death. And you got to admit, there's been some freaky stuff going on the last couple of weeks. Flies and frogs and the water in the Nile turned to blood. Um, what if the angel makes a mistake? I saw my oldest son, Aaron, this morning. I gave him a great big hug. What, what, if, what if it doesn't work? And Shlomo says, God told Moses what to do and you did it. It'll work. And Ike says, I, I, I still don't know. That night, the angel of death moves through Egypt. And in the morning, whose oldest son was still alive, Ike's or Shlomo's? Well, both of them. Both of them. Because God's faithfulness doesn't rely on the faithfulness of God's people. Now Ike and Shlomo are out in the wilderness. They've just run out of food. And Ike says, Moses says we're going to get food tomorrow. Where are we going to get food out here? And Shlomo says, look, we had this conversation about the water two weeks ago. The water was bitter. God promised us the water. Moses threw a log in the, in the water. We all thought it was a crazy idea, but it worked. God told us we're going to get bread tomorrow. Don't worry about it. And in the morning, which of the two went out and found manna? Both of them. Because God's faithfulness does not rely on the faithfulness of God's people. Or else the Hebrew people would have been gone a long time ago. There's a kind of faith out there that a lot of people, I'm afraid, in the church have. I call it Disney faith. Peter Pan kind of faith. That if you believe enough, you can do anything. Jump out the window and go flying with Peter Pan. When my daughter was a little girl, she and some her friends were in the back, back seat of the car, and the, uh, one of the friends had a tape they wanted to play, and it was the it was um, now I've forgotten the name of the, of the it was a film track to some Disney movie I forget which one, but it was that song I believe I can fly, I believe I can touch the sky, and I'm listening to this and I'm saying you can't. It doesn't matter how much you believe you can fly, you can't fly. Okay. Over and over again, God puts Himself to the test. And he always delivers. And do the people learn simply to trust God? Not to work up all the faith you can to do whatever you need to do, but simply to trust God to keep his promises. Do the people learn? Well, as people know, but as individuals, I hope, over increasingly, more of them would become faithful. But it's a long process of learning that God will be faithful. God will be faithful to you. I think I'm hearing a new call to a new message. I mean, you got the location, location, location thing already, so maybe it's time to, to move on to a new message. And I've had echoes of this in the last two sermons. It just pops up over and over. And it's me telling you that it's going to be okay. That you're going to be okay. Whatever you're going through, you're going to be okay. Even if... What you're going through leads to a humiliating, excruciating, agonizing, horrifying death. 
And how can I tell you that? Because Jesus had one of those, and he came back to tell us he's okay now. It's okay. The individual moments may not be okay. Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross saying this is okay. But it's going to be okay. How do we know that? Because Jesus came back to tell us it's going to be okay. In Jesus' name, amen.